uh, today at the at book at uh, Colossians, I should say, the letter to Colossae. And so uh, once again, uh, Paul keeps writing to these churches with whom he is in great relationship. We talked about that last week and always remembering that, uh, that these words from Paul come out of this great place of love and passion uh, for these people that he has served with and alongside of and prayed for. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 12, through the first verse of the fourth chapter. And so I invite you to hear these words from Paul. Paul says this, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another... And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, on a morning like this, in a passage like this, we are reminded of your love for us. We are reminded, Lord, of just how different our world is today from 2,000 years ago. And we are reminded of how much of it is still very much the same. So we pray that this morning that you would speak to us in such a way we would hear you well. That we would know who we are in you. That we would be drawn to be shaped more and more into who you say we are. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. And amen. 
So uh, if you've been with us, you know over the last year or so, we've been obviously calling this sermon title uh, a series, I should say, Grace Dangerous. And as we said at the very beginning of the year, we realized that that's kind of a weird sounding thing, especially to our English ear. It would make much more sense to say dangerous grace. It just flows better. But we did this uh, for a couple reasons. One of them, because we didn't want it to flow per se. We wanted it to cause us to stumble just a little bit to think, wait, wait, why grace dangerous? So that then we could talk about the why, which is that as followers of Jesus, we believe very strongly that we always begin with grace. That we don't begin with what it means to follow Jesus. We begin with understanding what it means simply to receive the abundant grace of God. And that you can't understand what it means to follow him and the cost of that if you don't adequately understand simply what it means to be loved by God. Theologians, we've talked about this before, they call this, because they always have to come up with these other words, that the imperative always follows the indicative. Okay, doesn't that just kind of roll off and make you feel warm and fuzzy inside? The imperative always follows the indicative. What does that mean? In other words, what we do is always followed in the life of Jesus by who we are. By who we are. And you cannot understand what it is that you're called to do if you don't begin from the right place which is understanding who we are. But we constantly mess that up because by and large in our culture and in ourselves, who we are is marked by what we do, right? And so so we almost always begin by what we do and then that shapes our identity. But in Jesus's world, this is flipped. But we pass that over and oftentimes, even as readers of scripture, we do that. The example that I most often give is the Old Testament. When we think about, uh, or, or, or the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, when you think about the Ten Commandments, and I actually, uh, I should have taken a picture of this. Just yesterday, we went driving out into the country, uh, my family and I. We went by this church. I won't name the church. It doesn't matter. Other than the fact that they had the Ten Commandments that were listed there on their church sign. But it started with the very, what we call the first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. It started with the imperative But that's not how the Ten Commandments begin. You can look it up. How do the Ten Commandments begin? They begin with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, I am the God who loves you. You are my loved people. And then as a loved people of God, this then is what you are called to do. You see, if you start with the command, if you start with the imperative, then eventually God will become nothing but a taskmaster and you will begin to see yourselves only as slaves and not as beloved children of God. We always begin with the indicative, with who you are, and then we move into who we are called to be, what we are called to do. Now, that's important because we see this in Paul as well. Throughout the epistles, again, we said this last week, you you, you look at a lot of things of what Paul tells us, these are the things we are supposed to do, right? And last week we said we can't detach that from the fact that, remember, that Paul loves these people, right? It comes from a loving place. But we also are prone when it comes to what Paul calls us to do, even in a passage like this one, to begin to say, okay, we got to be more meek. We got to be more compassionate. Okay, we got to forgive more. We got we to bear one another. We got to love more. And we go directly to there. But that's not how this part of the passage begins. 
Did you hear it? I'll repeat it just in case you started getting to the to-do list before you got to the to the to-be list. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let me say it again. As God's holy ones, chosen and beloved. This is how it begins. N.T. Wright, when he looks at this particular verse, he says it's this beautiful reminder that the reason why we are called to do these things is not because of our goodness, but because of God's grace. Not because of our lovableness, but because of God's love. And one of the things I want to say this morning, and I mean this, I want you to just hear this word, these words one more time. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And if you are in a place this morning where that is exactly what you need to hear. If you're in a place where you're wondering, well, I feel like I'm just not quite adding up. I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I, I should be doing more, doing this or that. Then here's my great invitation. You can go to sleep right now. One or two of you have already taken that, and I appreciate it. But I want you to go to sleep resting in that. You don't have to listen to anything else I say. But, I, but, but just to rest in that as God's chosen ones. You are a chosen one, holy and loved by God. And out of that place, Paul then begins to describe, if this is who you are, this is what it looks like. To be God's holy one. This is how we grow into who God already says that we are. What does he say? Well, he says you need to, we, the people who are loved by God, we grow in being compassionate, being kind and humble and meek and patient and bearing with one another and forgiving one another and loving one another. This is what it looks like. As you grow into being who God says you are, this, these are the characteristics. This is actually what it looks like. But then, of course, Paul, as he's apt to do, he doesn't just keep it kind of up there in the sky. Oh, this is, oh, yeah, I should be more meek. He then brings it home. This is what it actually looks like in day-to-day -day interaction. This is what it actually looks like to do those things in your household between spouses and children. Now, we need to pause here for a moment, for a few moments, actually, to talk a little bit about these particular, this particular part of the passage. Because in our 21st century ears, it can be a bit uh, uncomfortable. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Children, uh, uh, obey your, your parents in everything. Your fathers in everything. Uh, uh, slaves, obey your masters. What does that mean? Why, Paul, why doesn't he just say, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you just not have slaves at all? It can be a little uncomfortable to us, right? And, and it's easy, of course, as, as, as pastors to just kind of gloss over that and act like it's not even there. Make it easier for many of us. But the question is, how do we wrestle with that? Well, one of the things that we have to do, and, and, and quite frankly, I don't think we can actually ever get to this place completely, but at least we can begin to make some strides in this direction, is to try and understand just how radically different that society was in that particular 
time. It is hard for us, 2,000 years later, to really place ourselves in that time and in that place. But we have to at least attempt so that we can then hear how this would have sounded to this church in Colossae here in the middle of the Roman Empire. So one of the things that Ben Witherington points out is would have been very strange for them to have heard is that those in power, in this case, the, the, the husbands, the fathers, and the masters. Of course, those are, are the ones, oftentimes one and the same person perhaps, who were in power. How striking it would have been to their ears to have heard their names called and then to have heard Paul say, you need to limit the ways in which you wield that power. That would not have been understood in that time and place at all. Whenever they say, you know what, you need to not provoke your children, that would not have made sense to them, to these fathers. Whenever it's said that you should treat your slaves with, with fairly and justly, that would have sounded very foreign to them. Even when he simply says this, when, when, when they say to the husbands, when Paul says to the husband, you should love your wives. Now to us, you're like, well, duh. But that would not have sounded normal in that time and place. In fact, I say, um, one commentator even said that of all the Greco-Roman literature coming out, there was not one mention when it came to husbands and household and how they should act in all, any other literature, not one mention to the fact that husbands should love their wives. So if you're sitting there and you're hearing this and you happen to be a husband and you're listening there in this church in Colossae and all of a sudden they say, husband, you should love their wives. Well, that would just be like normal for us. So there might be, still be a couple wives. Like, yeah, did you hear that? But by and large, that would have been mind-boggling to them. Or to think about fathers. Now this again is something that's really hard, especially in our day and age, to believe. But I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not making this stuff up. Children in that day and age, of course... When it came to their relationship with their parents, children were there to wash their parents' feet, to make their parents' beds, and to stand there almost like a servant waiting for their parents to tell them what to do next. One, actually, and what, what's interesting is that no matter how old the child got, they were still under the thumb of their parents, especially their father. One kind of uh, ancient historian, he described the context like this. He says this, he says, The lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he thought it proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains and keep him at work in the fields, or to put him to death. And this, even though the son was already engaged in public affairs, though he was numbered among the highest magistrates, and though he was celebrated for his zeal for the commonwealth. In other words, no matter how wonderful and popular and how old the son may have gotten, still the father had all the power to be able to throw him in jail or worse if he wanted to. And in the midst of that context, Paul says to the fathers at the church in Colossae, as God's holy and beloved children, treat your children with compassion, with meekness, with humility, and do not provoke them. And then what about to the slaves? Now again, I think this is hard for us to imagine, but what you have to understand is that the slaves, of course, in that time and place, were virtually unseen 
as if they did not even exist. They were tools. And in the middle of that milieu, the middle of that environment, Paul says this. Paul calls them out. Typically, slaves would not have even been mentioned. They would have just been a part of the household. And he calls them out. And he says, first of all, because he's clearly talking to them, because he brings them up, that they are beloved children of God. But then he also says, and to you masters, you are the ones who are supposed to treat them fairly and justly. Can you imagine one who feels like nobody even notices them, and all of a sudden they're told that they should be treated with fairness and justly? You can imagine the awkward look from the slave up to their master at that point. And all of a sudden they realize, right, that those words that had come before, whenever it said you are a beloved child of God, more than likely a slave would have thought, well, I'm sure that just means the master. I'm sure that just means the family over here. It doesn't mean me. And all of a sudden he says, no, and you, slave, you have an inheritance. It would have blown their minds to believe and all of a sudden those who were unnoticed have been noticed all of a sudden those who had been some things were now some ones those who were simply tools to be used were now according to paul because they're beloved children of god they were people to be loved and so scholars tell us this is actually this kind of radical breaking in of God's kingdom and what Paul is saying. Now, surely, I understand that we can say, well, I just really wish that, that Paul would have said more. I wish he would have done more. I wish he would have just said, hey, as he seems almost to at least slightly suggest in the book of Philemon, that maybe we just shouldn't even have a slave, if at all possible. Maybe that's the direction we should move. But what we need to notice here is that the beginnings of this, the beginnings of being meek and compassionate and patient and forgiving and loving and beginning to grow all of a sudden and recognizing, wait, do you mean that the slave, that, the, that, that my wife, that, that my son is, is a beloved child of God, that it is upon those kind of beginnings that eventually you begin to begin to question and say, well, maybe not only should I treat my slave fairly and justly, maybe I shouldn't have that slave at all. But see, the thing about the gospel is this. That well before it says we should figure out how we're going to change the world, well before we decide we're going to do this big grandiose thing, the gospel always asks this question. Are you willing, first and foremost, to begin changing yourself, to allow God to change you? Because any kind of radical change that occurs... If it is going to be of the kingdom, it always begins right here. And it always begins in one's own household. See, this is the subversive way that the gospel works. Think about the life of Jesus, right? There's Jesus you have the disciples. And what do the disciples want? We know this, right? This is very common. What do the disciples want? They want to know, when are we, understandably so, when are we going to overthrow the oppressive government of the Romans? When are we going to do that? We've always been a people who love to talk about whatever government is there and how we need to figure out how to get out of it. 
We've got these grandiose plans. How could God disagree with this? Surely God does not like this Roman Empire. And he didn't, I'm sure of it. The way that they were oppressing, surely God doesn't like this. And Jesus says, oh, okay, I understand you want to do that. (laughs) Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. How entirely unsatisfying. I don't want to do that. I want to rail on this. The disciples say, oh, okay, you know, we want to know, when are we going to sit at your right and left? I cannot wait to be in control. Because if I was in control, oh, then things would finally go the right way. And I'd stick with you, Jesus. You're right here. I want to know, when can I be on your right and your left? And Jesus says, oh, you're speaking like the Gentiles. You know how you begin to to be in power? You begin by serving one another. Here, let me wash your feet. Who would rather rule the world than wash someone's nasty feet? Jesus says, no, 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 this is the way it begins. Throughout the New Testament, there is example of example throughout the Gospels of how Jesus keeps redirecting the desires. The disciples want to do these big, grandiose things. They want to change the world. And Jesus says, first And foremost, we begin in the subversive ways that we begin to change you. And that's how we begin to build for God's kingdom. I love what Rodney uh, Rodney Clapp, he talks about subversive and the subversive way of the gospel. And he says says this, he says says that the subversive rarely, actually he says the subversive never does anything big. The subversive is always, I love this imagery, always carrying secret messages, I would say, of compassion and mercy and humility. Planting suspicion, listen to this, planting suspicion wherever he or she goes that there is something beyond what the culture says is final. In other words, that what the subversive does, what the follower of Jesus does, just as Jesus called us to, is that when everybody else is all upset about all these things and wanting to do these massive things and saying, oh, well, this is really what's important, and the culture saying, no, no, this is what's really important, they're just going around kind of planting just these little seeds of mercy and of meekness and of compassion and forgiveness so that at some point, and it rarely happens quickly because this is the way of the subversive, and it's the way of the gospel, at some point, those who are just kind of living their lives and begin to realize how unfulfilling they are, at some point they begin to say, wait a second, what's this group of people over here are so doggone meek? And yet seem to be much less anxious and fearful than we are. Here's the other thing that Rodney Clapp says about this subversive gospel. He says, you have to understand that Christian subversion is nothing flashy. It's not grandiose. Subversives, I love this, they don't win the battles. All they do is prepare the ground and change the mood just a little bit toward belief and hope. So that when Christ appears, there are people waiting for him. Steady, stable, plotting. Just dropping hints of hope and peace 
as we live our lives in this world around us. But again, there is nothing glamorous about that, is there? That does not trend on anything. That does not excite anyone. You know what? It's about as exciting as putting on clothes. How exciting is putting on clothes? For me these days, it's really not very exciting. It's basically like, hey, I can't believe these actually still fit. Thank God for sweatpants. That's about the extent. Which is a part of the reason why it seems to me why Paul kind of uses that imagery of clothing, right? He says this twice in this passage. Clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with being meek. Clothe, your, clothe yourselves with being compassionate. Clothe yourselves with forgiveness. Clothe yourselves with bearing with one another. Clothe yourselves with love. Why? Well, because A, this is something that we do every single day. B, clothes do not just jump on us, right? No, no, no. We have to put them on. C, it seems to me, because it isn't all that exciting. It is just something that you decide that you have to do every single day, that you awaken and you have a real choice. Do I want to clothe myself like I am a, myself, like I am a beloved child of God or not? And if I do, then this is what it looks like. And bit by bit, as I decide to put on my compassion and my meekness and my humility, and you decide to put on your patience and your forgiveness and your willingness to bear with one another, all of a sudden, we slowly but surely begin to bring around this, this, the secrets of the gospel about the fact that there is a different way. And slowly but surely, we begin to build for God's kingdom. But it does not happen with one grandiose stroke. It only happens as we decide that rather than just being angry about the world around us and wanting to change it like we think it should be changed, that the change for those who have the courage to believe it always begins with asking, Lord, how might I be dressed differently today? And what will that cost? But steady, stable, and plodding, the subversive gospel begins to work in ways we would never be able to imagine. This past week, I began reading a biography on uh, Eugene Peterson. I love Eugene Peterson. Uh, I've said that before. He, he has made, uh, he recently passed away, but has made, a, made a, a massive impact on my life and many people's lives. Most folks uh, kind of got to know Eugene Peterson because of the message. Uh, I've read from that a, a few times in my time here and uh, which is great, um, but, but for some of us who are pastors, we'd heard about Eugene uh, Peterson for decades, really, because he wrote these books that not nearly as many people read, um, but they were just this, this kind of masterful writings to help pastors and others, and he has this, just this kind of great combination of, of humility, uh, which is always, I think, something to look to, uh, gentleness, 
but a way of speaking the truth with great wisdom. I mean, it was clear that this was a man who was steeped in prayer and steeped in the scripture. He was, he was remarkable in so many ways. And in the biography uh, that I've been reading, it talked about how when he was uh, during the, uh, one of the summers of college, so long time ago, um, um, he, was, uh, he was in Montana, which is where he's from. He had gone back there one summer, and he was not in a good place. He was in an incredibly dry and dark place in his life. He didn't know why, but he didn't know what to do or what was going to happen with his life. He was just, he was really struggling. And so someone said, well, you know what you should do? You should go see the pastor of this church. And so he said, okay. And, and so he went to go see the pastor, and that was incredibly unhelpful. That happens a decent amount. So someone else said, well, you know what you should do? You should go see this other person in the church. This person's very theologically astute. You know, he's steeped in the scripture. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards. And so he went to go see him. But, but he said, well, this guy, all he wanted to do was just teach Eugene all the time. And he, and he was somewhat arrogant. And so it just was wholly unhelpful. So finally someone said, well, you know, I think, I think who you should go see. He said, well, who? I think you should go see Reuben Lance. And, Reuben was not the kind of person that Eugene would have gone to see normally. In fact, this is how he describes him. He says he had huge outcroppings of bristle for eyebrows. I love that. Huge outcroppings of bristle for eyebrows and a wild red beard. He said he looked mean. In fact, this was the kind of guy that you would want to, to be with in a dark alley as long as he was on your side. This is the kind of person you wanted. And so he thought for sure, uh, uh, Eugene said, that, that when he went in there to see this kind of big, burly man, that he was probably going to mock Eugene for what he was doing rather than really being so, able to be someone who helped him. But they started meeting in their church uh, once or twice a week. He said, here's the thing about Reuben. Reuben didn't use any pious language. No great theological insights from Reuben. But he treated me like a person. And he just, he listened to me. And he treated me with dignity. And, and I would suggest that it sounds like he treated him with someone who was going to be meek with him and be patient with him and loving him. He said, that, that's really all that he did he said, but by the end of that summer, by the end of that summer, he says, I was a changed man. When I went back to college, all of a sudden, everything looked different because of this time that I'd been with Reuben, right? This very nondescript, non-fascinating, non-grandiose way of just getting together a couple times a week. And all of a sudden, it began to change Eugene Peterson, which of course means that eventually what Reuben did began to change me and began to change many others, of course, who have been impacted by Peterson's life and by the ways in which Peterson has helped us to understand that we, that I am a beloved child of God and what that means to me, all of those things. Why? Because of this very nondescript kind of way in which, in which Reuben was just kind of there and present and patient. But now here's the other part of that story that was striking to me, which is that several decades later, by this point, Reuben was in his 80s. He wasn't doing well. And Eugene Peterson got his phone number, and he called Reuben. And he began to tell him, you know what, I just want you to know what an incredible impact you had on my life. 
I want you to know how much you influenced who I have become, the radical way in which you changed my whole life by that one summer. And here's what Reuben said. First, he didn't say anything at all. In fact, Peterson said there was this long, somewhat awkward silence. Then he said this. You know, I'm just sitting here in my bed. I'm very ill and I can't do much. And you're telling me that those Thursday nights at the church changed your life? No one has ever said anything like that to me before. And then he began to weep. You see, here's my concern about a people who don't want to be subversive, but instead get so focused on wanting to do something massive and wanting to make massive shifts and wanting to change everything in the world, which is that you never get out of bed because it paralyzes you when you think you've got to do all of this. You don't even get dressed. But see, the incredible gift of this very small thing to which Paul calls, you know what? You just begin to be merciful. You just begin to be humble and patient. Here's the thing, and it might be what scares us the most, which is this. It means that all of us can do it. All of us. During my time in pastoral ministry, and in fact, this literally has happened twice in the last three weeks here at ZPC, I have heard from older saints And they have said apologetically to me, I am sorry that I cannot do more. I can't do what I used to be able to do. Oftentimes it's a sense of I can't lead any activities or or I can't be generous like I used to be generous. And I'm, I'm sorry. And whenever I hear that, two things happen. One is it breaks my heart. And two is it's a lie. Because the reality, of course, is that they can do remarkable things. Several months ago at Mary Faulkner's funeral, I remember I sitting up and talking about the ways in which she was such an encouragement to people like me and to Pastor Scott and to so many. There was this sense of compassion and and joy that she had. She She was this older, subversive lady who was going around and sowing these little seeds of joy that made you think and made you realize, wait, there is something more to life. And she could do that just like all of our older folks who can if you can pray you can make an impact for the gospel did you hear me i know this group doesn't like saying amen but this is a group that should say it right now i understand the doubts and the fears and the sadness that can come from thinking well i guess my time has passed i guess i'm just kind of you know just kind of out here and i want you to know there are so many remarkable things that you can do for the gospel just by your willingness to be patient and to be merciful and to be humble it makes a remarkable impact that you will probably never see 
Or I talk to stay-at-home moms. Every once in a while, stay-at-home dad, but usually more stay-at-home moms. And they are just, you know, they're, they're, they feel like their life is on fire right now, right? It's almost the opposite. They're just doing so much. And yet they often are like, well, I just, I can't do anything right now other than just take care of these kids, you know? And you can just see it in their eyes. And they're just like, oh, I'm sorry. I wish, you know what? I just, I, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel like I'm making much of an impact. And I'm feeling I'm doing everything I, everything I do to keep my head above water. And I look at them and I realize that the way of course, that they are loving their children is, is this great reminder to the child. They're beginning to cultivate them in this way of remembering that they are beloved children of God. And, and then at things like mops, I see them ministering to other moms who are also drowning, it seems, so often or who are just struggling, right, like any of us would. And I see the way that they're treating them like they're beloved children of God. And I think, no, stop apologizing. This is the way of the gospel, which is that little thing of loving this child as if they are a child of God because they are that. It's a remarkable impact. Or I think about our younger folks, uh, our, and by this I mean our, our kids, our little kids who just think, oh, I, mean, I just can't wait. Someday I'm going to make a difference. Someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something big. And I'm reminded of this very week, this week when I was meeting with somebody in his 40s, and we were talking about people who had an impact for Jesus on his life. And he went all the way back to high school. And this other kid that was one year older than him in high school, but who was remarkably humble, was a follower of Jesus, was remarkably humble. And this this guy at 40 or 41 could look back and remember how that other high school kid had had an impact. Why? Because he was some great athlete, because he was a star student, because he was making all the difference in the world and doing 5,000 service projects. No, because he was humble. Every day, you have a choice. Am I willing this morning to put on compassion and patience and forgiveness even if no one seems to notice? Even if I don't get a sense of anything changing? Every day, you have an opportunity to be a subversive member of God's family. And someday, I, I am confident that we will look back and be able to see how all of those small acts of mercy and forgiveness and patience have led to God's coming kingdom, bit by bit, steady, stable, plodding. So let us gather together, sisters and brothers in Christ. Don't wait for some big opportunity. Just get up, put on that compassion and that humility. And let us discover together how God can work through even the smallest of acts. Remember, you are God's beloved. Now let's act like it. Let's pray.
God, we pray for your spirit to be with us even now. For those of us who need to only hear this reality, that they are loved by God, I pray that you would help them to hear that right now. For the others of us, Lord, who may be wondering whether or not we are going to make any difference in this world around us, whether or not we're having any kind of significant impact, I pray that you would help them to see how Jesus from the very beginning It was about those simple acts of loving a neighbor, of forgiving, of being humble, of bearing one another's burdens. And in so doing, God, has your kingdom been able to grow in this world? Give us the courage every morning to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.